Hello, and welcome to Winning Retail. This episode features an interview with Andrew Harsager, head of retail innovation labs for Cartier North America. Since 2017, Andrew has worked to design and test new forms of retail experiences while exploring new frontiers outside the world of jewelry and luxury goods. On today's episode, Andrew talks about the mission of the Cartier Lab, fostering relationships with artists outside a commercial environment, and the balance between heritage and innovation. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is presented by Dell Technologies and Intel. Together, we help you realize digital transformation across retail by driving IT innovation to better engage with today's connected consumer. Learn more at dellteknologies.com retail and intel.com retail. So please enjoy this interview between Andrew Harsager, head of retail innovation labs for Cartier North America, and your host, Tony Saldana. Hey, hello, and welcome to a new episode of Winning Retail, the podcast that's been designed for retail executives like yourself. We like to turn the biggest retail disruptions into the biggest opportunities for you. My name is Tony Saldana, and today I'm really excited to have Andrew Harsager, head of retail innovation labs, Cartier North America. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Tony, for having me. Excited to be here. I um, I have to say, Andrew, you've got one of these cool jobs that most innovators and design folks would absolutely kill for. Uh, it's very, very cool. Nothing better than retail innovation labs. But um, tell us a little more about your background and how uh, you landed up at this uh, dream job at uh, Cartier. Sure. Well, I guess starting from the beginning, I grew up in Idaho, you know, and in high school, I wanted to be an architect, which I, I think in a lot of middle America is sort of the career pathway that is outlined for you if you're generally a creative person, but also a rule follower. <laughs> and so uh, that was what I wanted to do. I went to RISD for, in the end, industrial design. And, you know, by the time I graduated, I had been taking most of my classes in the digital media uh, fine arts department there at RISD. And so I, I had no idea at the time, but would kind of make a very important inflection on the rest of what I did. Um, after graduation, I worked in a fashion agency in New York for a couple of years, but most of my 20s were spent at a design firm called Tellart, and that was such an interesting role to be in. It was a scenario where, you know, for different clients, we would work with museums and cultural institutions to create spaces that told stories through interactivity. We would also work in product design and, uh, you know, kind of everywhere in between. And when I was working at that firm, I was there for many, many years. And it was from there that Cartier picked me up because Cartier was interested in creating this space for retail innovation. The mission of the Cartier Lab is threefold. Uh, on the one hand, it's about enchanting the client experiences. It's also about creating smoothness in our business operations. And then the third part of that is what they called exploring new frontiers, meaning looking outside the world of jewelry, outside the world of luxury, looking at what's going on in design and technology and fine arts and academia and museums and honestly smaller creative communities that don't normally engage with a brand like ours and figuring out, you know, what are the interesting connections that could be made and what parts of those worlds could be brought back to our business to, you know, strengthen who we are and strengthen the relationships that we have with our clients. So the idea, I think, was in 
a lot of ways to start building a new set of best practices around how we use technology at our business. But, you know, the more we dug into it, the more that this kind of principle emerged, that innovation in our case is not going to be necessarily synonymous with technology. And, you know, a lot of the projects that we do are, are strictly technological and really based on R&D. But we have also done projects that are only human, that have not only no technology, but no material associated with them. They're only based on rituals and um, creating spaces for interaction in new ways. That that sounds fascinating. I mean, you know, uh, would you be able to give us a few examples of um, the kind of stuff you're working on right now? Sure, can do. Well, I think if you interview anybody who's working in innovation in jewelry, they would talk about augmented reality. This would be a big thing for our business as it is for so many. And I think it's especially meaningful for a business like ours because we are a manufacturer of precious goods. And just by definition, we can't manufacture enough of the product for every item in every colorway, in every size, to be present in all of our boutiques. And the unfortunate situation there is, you know, because of that constraint, we can't possibly have all items in a store that somebody might want to see. And that's not a good experience for our clients. So augmented reality is a big one for us. We like to call this fancy and not fancy AR. On the fancy side, you know, that's really about helping people understand what this product is with them, with their body and their world. We were actually unable to find any partners outside that could offer jewelry augmented reality at the level of quality that we needed. And so this became some original tech R&D that we've been doing ourselves and have been getting great results with. And actually this summer, we've started doing our first client tests with that technology in a couple of our boutiques in the New York region. The not fancy AR is sometimes where a little bit more fun and playfulness comes in. Something that we're testing in the mansion, our, our Fifth Avenue flagship store here in New York, on the fourth floor is our service salon. And if you go there and you have a little bit of time to wait before your appointment and you have kids with you, you know, it's a scenario where kids might get bored. They might ask to, you know, look at the parent's phone with the assumption that a happy kid is a happy family <laughs> and, uh, you know, someone who can spend more time in the stores. Uh, we've introduced a, a prototype of an enchanted coloring book where the kids can follow along and they see what's going on behind the scenes at Cartier. They follow these little panther watch designers as they design a new timepiece and it gets manufactured in the in the watchmaking factory. And as the kids go through and they color in these parts of the watch with the panthers, at the end, they can show that to an iPad and it brings together all of the items that they've colored into a custom little timepiece that the kid can try on themselves. They can try on their own creation. Wow. That definitely sounds, you know, like a really holistic approach to shopping, which is, you know, not just the virtual reality of um, the jewelry, but, you know, also taking care of the kids while, uh, you know, the parents are shopping. I was going to ask you, Andrew, you were talking about human understanding as well as technology. And, and you mentioned, which I completely agree with, that very often innovation is mistaken to be, you know, cool stuff with technology. But at its heart, it's really about understanding your your shoppers and, and trying to figure out what their emotions are and, and how to best meet them where they need to be met. What are some examples of human understanding and, and, and how do you approach such a complex subject? I would say that developing the human understanding with regard to any 
any new service, any piece of furniture, any technology that we go into the boutique is paramount. You know, we can't have a world where we just create an object, we drop it into the boutiques and expect the sales associates to be able to naturally use it in front of their clients. You know, doing anything in front of our clients is is risky. You know, we want to give the clients the most smooth possible experience in our boutiques. And so when there's uncertainty in that, it reduces first of all, the quality of the experience for the client, but it also reduces the likelihood that the service will get used by the sales associate. And so anytime we make something, we're going to be partnering with our learning and transformation department to figure out how the it should be rolled out with the right understanding for the sales associates. But I think that's also a space that can be worked in for projects on its own. One thing that we introduced in the last year was a program called Liaisons, which is an internal-only program that creates spaces where we called them corridors of interaction between our world, between the sales associates and the people in our corporate environment, with people from entrepreneurial, academic, uh, artistic, and cultural communities outside our walls. And those are communities where, in a business like ours, oftentimes the only times people can interact with individuals from those communities and build connections inside them is when we have a commercial relationship with that entity. It's when we've hired an artist to do an installation or we're sponsoring an exhibit at a museum. And those commercial relationships are great, but they also color the interactions that people can have. And so we wanted to create spaces where the borders of our business are lowered a little bit and we bring people in and we create essentially safe spaces for interaction outside of a commercial environment. And so what that looked like were different kinds of both big and small interaction opportunities where people could blend, talk about a certain topic, learn, and honestly, through doing this, we tell the sales associates that we as a business are embracing more about the entire person that that sales associate is. We encourage them to find interests and to increase their involvement in those interests and bring that back to their work in the business. Because when they become a more well-rounded person and they are involved in the same kinds of communities that our clients are involved in, then they can connect with our clients on those levels. And it serves to deepen that relationship that they have with those. So that sounds like a very, very interesting approach. Very, very human-centric and, and shopper-centric, that's for sure. But do you think that innovation and retail, especially retail lab innovation, has matured over the past five to 10 years, where it's become much more about you know, the human side and problem solving on the human side, rather than just you know, the shock and awe of cool technology? I like to think it has, um, but, you know, I'm also coming to this from a privileged position inside a luxury brand where, you know, our whole business relies on the human. And so it's an, a supportive environment for that kind of thinking. There might be other businesses where, you know, it does need to be a technological question. I think the the people who set up the lab and our ways of working, our structures of governance before I joined, really had that in mind, had in mind how to learn from the experiences of other labs and how to avoid some of the pitfalls that have been seen, you know, regardless of what the business type is. You know, to bring up the most obvious example, labs are able to work without constraints in a lot of in, in a lot of circumstances. And that's great for their creativity, that's the point. But that's also something that 
can negatively impact the adoption of their projects back into the main business. You see this time and time again, and oftentimes it's a failure point for labs because, you know, if those projects can't ultimately be realized at scale, you know, then what's the point? You know, do we have just a, a source of inspiration internally? Oftentimes that's not enough. So the process that we adopted at the beginning was really a process of co-building the solutions together with people from the business. Though we have a team of expert practitioners here in Brooklyn, you know, we have a, a team of industrial designers, graphic designers, creative technologists, producers, retail strategists. Those people are doing a lot of the work, but it's not a, a world where we are just a, you know, a, a team of geniuses off in our own little world that are coming up with solutions. That's not the thing. The thing is, every project that we do is done in collaboration with a team of relevant people from across the business. And we're asking them to stretch and to work transversely. And a lot of times, People might be in roles where they aren't asked to do that very often, and we find that that's it's very pleasurable for them. And I think that's it's necessary because you know if we come up with solutions outside of that, and we just try then to apply those to other parts of the business that didn't have anything to do with them to begin with, that's not a recipe for success, for sure. And I can't say that we've completely solved this problem, but we're at least learning from the past, and you know, the results have been good so far. That's so on point. I think, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that innovation labs have historically made, and I'm really glad to see that, you know, you're avoiding all of that and and building the next generation of thinking around that. But uh, the mistake that's been made is, you know, almost to focus so much on the what's possible that it gets, you know, disconnected from the what's needed and how to scale some of the capabilities there. And so the risk there in the past has been that it ends up being innovation theater rather than you know, true scalable innovation, right? And uh, your approach is certainly different, both in the sense that you, know, you seem to be starting with the, um, the problems, the, the human side of the problems, as well as the business side of the problems. And then, you know, working backwards from there to figure out what technology to bring in. Now, of course, technology is always going to be a central part of what you do, because at the end of the day, that's how you're going to deliver the innovation. But, you know, I think that distinction between, you know, technology as a means rather than technology as an end can spell uh, success or failure there. Now, why do you suppose Cartier decided to open its first retail innovation lab in Brooklyn rather than, you know, let's say at home in Paris? With that, you know, it goes back to that human connection to our clients. You know, we're a business that has the privilege of coming into our clients' lives at moments of emotional significance most of the time. And as wise as the citizens of Paris and Geneva are and, you know, their understanding of the brand that they are creating, at the same time, are they best positioned to know what's meaningful for, you know, a client in Houston or in in Phoenix or in Detroit, not necessarily. And so the idea was really that we bring a creative team that has those linkages to Paris, put them close to those clients on the ground in the market and encourage them to go into the boutiques, interview the clients, you know, show prototypes to the clients and honestly ask them what is memorable and meaningful for them rather than telling them. You know, a lot of the times in the luxury industry, we wouldn't want to show something to a client where not all of the questions are answered. But to look about that 
in a slightly different way, it's to bring the clients into the creative process, which is a different version of respect for those clients. And it can result in scenarios where we might discover that what we thought was meaningful for them isn't the case. And, you know, something else that we wouldn't have thought of is. And it's only through those kinds of direct connections that you can discover that. And so that's why that was sent to Brooklyn first. And uh, another lab has opened in 2019 in Shanghai to do the same thing for the Chinese clientele. Okay. Um, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you've got to focus on the uh, client and the shopper, and they're going to be different, different parts of the world. But um, that's very cool. Very good. So obviously, you're going to end up with a network of these labs, I assume, sometime in the future. Yes. Uh, so for right now, there's us and there's Shanghai. Tokyo is in the works. And then there will be kind of a, a related central facility in Geneva that will be not a retail lab necessarily, but will be uh, part of the network where we can all come together. Um, what's been the reaction to the rest of the organization to you know, Cartier creating this, um, you know, disruptive innovation lab. Quite positive, honestly. We've enjoyed a, a very strong, positive reaction. I think people look for ways that the business is moving forward. And when you're at a big heritage brand, I think there are a lot of people of the opinion that we don't move fast enough in some areas. I think especially at the sales associate level, honestly, we've had a lot of people come to us with problems that they felt weren't being addressed elsewhere in the organization, and they were something that we were able to work into our projects. There was a time we were having a demo day here, and, and we showed a prototype solution that actually brought a couple of tears to the eyes of the sales associates who were present, because it was, you know, it, it's something where they were looking for a solution to a problem for what they felt were, were many years, and suddenly here it was. And that was such a, a pleasure, honestly, such a pleasure to see. Hey, that's about as good as it gets, you know, if you get your uh, internal associates to um, bring tears to their eyes. Hey, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> Absolutely. Very, very cool. So the, um, the issue of scaling change is obviously very, very top of mind for most organizations. And, um, you know, so it's, it's great to see that your associates at Cartier are uh, um, embracing the kind of innovation that you're bringing in. Some of that clearly you know, that tone is set at the top. I believe in 2019, your CEO, Cyril Vigneron, said that one of his three areas of focus was to revitalize retail and communication strategies, um, which had become somewhat conventional and dusty. So what have you seen in terms of that tone from the top of, we've got to do things differently, and how is that helping you as uh, you scale some of your innovations? I think Cyril is one of the key proponents of a new way of thinking internally. And, you know, the way statements like that, that he makes impact us is I think that it's easy in a brand like ours. I mean, Cartier is almost 200 years old. And so much of what we do is based in heritage, in, in referencing, you know, versions of ourselves in the past or um, iconic products that, you know, that became part of our part of our output at different points. And, and that's great. That's that's what makes us who we are. But I think it's also easy to fall into a trap where it seems that innovation or that making changes in the ways that you do things is in tension with the idea of heritage. And 
Cyril's opinion, I think, is is that those things are not intention, and I would absolutely agree with that. You know, if you think about heritage as the stuff that you see on the surface, you know, the the modes of communication, the ways of selling, the designs of our boutiques, and the individual products that we've made for you know sometimes many many decades continuously then it becomes hard to figure out you know what's going to be next how to change those things but if you think of heritage instead as the grammar that is informing all of those decisions if you bring it back to something that feels more fundamental then the way you can look at it is as constraints that become clues for you to invent later you know i think it's easy for people in the business sometimes to as we said already look at an innovation lab and, you know, think, well, ah, those people over there, you know, that don't have any constraints, they can just do whatever they want. That's actually really not the case. I think, you know, it, it's a process of discovering what constraints you can work with that are maybe different than the constraints of the rest of the business. But there's no way to invent something new without figuring out what the constraints are. And so playing with that grammar of heritage has been something that's been such a wonderful privilege for us. And we're not the only ones doing that. That's happening across the business. You're right that it's change that needs to happen from above. And so the retail lab, our existence and our way of working is one expression of that. But you see those kinds of expressions happening everywhere. There's a lot of change happening in our business right now. That delicate balance between heritage and change is something that it's got to be a really fine line to walk, right? You know, Cartier as a brand is iconic. I mean, you know, there are color schemes, there are, you know, ways in which business is done. That is heritage and, and you don't mess with that. But on the other hand, you're supposed to innovate, you're supposed to be edgy. So how do you go about determining how to walk that fine balance? Another privilege of working for Cartier is that one of the elements of heritage that fit into the that library is the idea of dualities and of tension on its own. So the idea that we can be a house that is on the one hand creating high jewelry that you know goes into royal collections but then on the other hand be making punk inspired fine jewelry you know that appeals to a Gen Z audience those two things are not the same they exist in the same house and there's an interesting dialogue between them and you can play in that space not every heritage brand of course has that as part of their principles but we do and that's been i think one of the key driving factors in a lot of the innovations that have been happening it's that you know you can have both that duality principle um has has got to be absolutely critical to the work that you do. Um, I can see why, you know, that message from the top, that embracing of that duality and, you know, the intentionality of going after uh, driving that change is, is, is turning out to be so successful. Now, the, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, Andrew, is, of course, how you continue to drive some of that innovation mindset into the broader organization. I mean, you know, as Innovation Labs, and you mentioned that earlier, your job is not just to bring in new ideas, but to also, you know, continue to educate the rest of the organization so that they see the possibilities. How do you go about doing that? I'd say the issue of internal persuasion and education remains one of the biggest challenges that we face. Partly that's just because we are a big, big business, you know, and, you know, we stretch across the entire globe. 
across different cultures. Everybody looks at these things differently. We have certain modes of internal communication that we use for this. We have um, a, a world meeting once a year where executives from all of the markets get together in a single location to, you know, have FaceTime and, and learn about what's going on. You know, we have internal kind of social network channels, but there's no magic bullet. Honestly, it's just work every single day. It's meeting new people. COVID has certainly made this more of a challenge. It's had an isolating effect on on business departments that aren't close to each other. So that's something where you need to actively work against it. And I think the governance that was established for the retail lab before it was operational set it up for success in this regard as much as could be expected, uh, which is to say that you know, we sit in New York inside Cardia North America, which is a retail subsidiary market for Cartier International, the main business in Paris and Geneva. And so traditionally, you know, in that kind of structure, regional markets are meant to adapt solutions that are developed internally for their local audience. But it's not necessarily about originating a ton of new new ways of looking at the brand or new ways that clients can interact with us or understand our stories in different ways. That's a level of agency that just hasn't really traditionally been awarded for individual markets in a business like ours. So part of the setup here was to take this creative team, put it on the ground in a place like New York, and have the structure be, okay, legally we are part of Cardia North America, but we have these dotted line connections to so many entities in the business and we're governed by a steering committee that is largely made up of people in the international business, including Cyril Vigneron. And so those connections, those dotted line connections, tend to be the things where, yes, they're, they're governing. Do they say yes or no to the things that we're proposing? But they're also making these connections between the projects that we're doing and what's going on with the thousands of people who work with us elsewhere. So it really must be an international network. And again, there's no perfect solution to that. But uh, it's it's just every day. It's it's um, meeting new people, describing the work, making connections, and making changes, and being able to have a process where you respond to new things that you learn as those connections are made. Yeah, and a lot of it is indeed hard work and rolling up your sleeves, and 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 also the mindset that you know at the end of the day, one small organization, even if it happens to be a very creative, very productive, very successful lab is not going to be able to change the whole company. You know, you have to bring the rest of the organization along. And and I can see that kind of play out here. So that's very nice to see. Um, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about technologies. Now, yes, all of this is within the context that we all agree that, you know, technology is a means, not an end. But still, there are some trends that I'm sure you see. So what are some of the more exciting technologies that uh, you're playing with right now? I mentioned augmented reality to you before. You know, this is something that's big for us in our business, but I think it falls within a category of greater technologies that you could call maybe virtual representation of objects. Um, and in some ways, they're meant to solve some of the same problems as AR, but in a different context. So, for example, one of the things that we're rolling out across the U.S. right now is um, a, quote, hologram vitrine that we designed a couple of years ago. You know, of course, hologram doesn't mean any one thing in particular. Um, but what this is, is a piece of furniture that you know looks like it belongs in the universe of the rest of the furniture of our boutique. But it uses a Pepper's Ghost illusion to display high jewelry pieces to people who are visiting stores where we might not have those as part of the store's assortment. And 
that's a design challenge. I think it comes back to design where you know, you have a, a technology, you could call it, even though, you know, Pepper's Ghost is a technology that was invented in the 19th century, um, you know, that needs to go into a piece of furniture where there is actually no reference point for how that should look. You know, how do you give that digital representation of an object the texture of reality or, you know, the gravity that makes it feel like an important object and not just something that's static on a screen? And so, one of the big challenges there was not anything at all to do with the technology. It was about designing a piece of furniture that helps people understand what they're looking at. In the first version of this, actually, we we designed the furniture around the thing. Uh, it has, of course, embedded computation inside, but we also embedded a Pico projector underneath the digital image. And all that did was display the caustic reflections from the precious stones on the surrounding surfaces. So people honestly didn't, you don't realize that you see that kind of thing when you're looking at it. What you see is the piece and it feels real. And it's only when someone points that out to you that, you know, what you're looking at is a reflection on glass and normally it wouldn't show the kinds of reflections on the surrounding surfaces that, that a piece would in real life that had to be digitally reproduced, but it gives it that texture of reality. So, you know, I think to bring that back to what new technologies are exciting for us, I think the question ends up really always coming back to relevance for our world. When new technologies come out, you know, a, a few years ago, every single person was asking me about when are we putting VR in the boutiques? Now, today, you know, about once a week, I get an email from somebody asking when we're going to do NFTs. And, you know, <laughs> the answer is... It's not no for either of those things. The question is, what is the relevant context? How does that, how does that really fundamentally come back to who we are and how we can create stronger connections with our clients and a stronger presence for the brand? In both of those cases, I'm not convinced that either of them will. <laughs> but you know, we're we're looking into it because you know that's that's part of our job too. We need to we need to be in a position of helping to draw those connections, having an open mind, approaching it with curiosity and, you know, promoting new solutions when we think they're relevant. Uh, that's a, a hallmark of a, a great innovation organization that, that uh, focus on the context, you know, of what problem are we trying to solve? Not just, uh, you know, what's all the uh, things around me that I'm getting excited by at this point in time. So very cool. Hey, um, Andrew, this has been a very fun conversation, um, but I'm going to now turn it around away from you know, the cool work that you're doing at uh, Cartier and focus a little more about Andrew, the person, in something that we call our lightning round of questions. Uh, you okay to play along? Sure, let's do it. All right, okay, let's go. Um, nicest watch that you've ever worn? Well, it's not the most expensive one, but my favorite watch that I've ever worn has been the Double Wrap Panther watch that uh, that we came out with a couple of years ago. The Panther is actually a feminine watch. It's um, one that we came out with in the 80s and was reissued. Uh, it, its bracelet is very, very special. It's got this incredibly smooth, heavy, almost liquid feeling gold bracelet. And... Uh, there's a version of the watch now where you can get a triple or a double wrap on that bracelet and it feels like armor. You feel like, you know, partly a genie and, you know, partly a king. And uh, a very kind person from our workshop once lent me one for an event. So that was my favorite. Oh, that sounds cool. Very, very cool. 
Um, best thing that you've bought recently? I'd say a drawing by the Brooklyn artist Clay Schiff. It's one of our favorite new objects that we own. What's uh, your favorite subscription service? I'd have to go with Curology. It's a subscription for prescription skincare. You know, based on your preferences, it uh, sends you a custom mix of whatever you need and you don't have to make any choices. So that, in my estimation, is, is a subscription that's valuable for me. Oh, I'll have to look into that. I, I, I didn't know about that. Oh, very nice. So um, we here at the uh, podcast um, are very aware that, you know, we can give our guests a little bit of a bump, maybe even, you know, kind of get them sponsored by a big brand somewhere. So this is a favor that I'm going to offer you. If uh, I could get you sponsored by one brand, what would it be and why? I'd have to go with Lowe's. Um, my husband and I are renovating a house upstate, and I, th I think I'm in Lowe's oh. every single weekend. So... <laughs> I'd have to go with that. So, Lowe's, if you're out there, call me. <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm a big fan of Lowe's myself. I, I, I do a lot of work there. Uh, very nice. And then uh, maybe one more. Um, what's the most fun app on your phone right now? Oh, well, speaking of Upstate, I would have to say the app Seek uh, that was created by the uh, California Academy of Science. Um, it's a, an app where you can show it an image of any plant or fungus or insect out in the wild and it will identify it for you as close as it can. Sometimes just the genus, sometimes the actual species. And its accuracy is so unbelievable. It, it wows me every single day. So I would recommend that as a download. Oh, that, that does sound very cool. Well, hey, Andrew, thank you very much for sharing a little bit about uh, yourself. Um, but before I let you go, I, uh, I'd like to ask you, what advice would you have for anybody who's at the beginning of their career and the journey that you've been through? I'd have to say, stay curious and demonstrate that curiosity for others. Don't let people fall into traps of cynicism, you know, in a, in a corporate world about speed or about, you know, what is or is not possible. It's important to maintain that energy and also use your own calendar, block your time. Don't let other people take up every slot because uh, sometimes you need to space to do your own work. That's great advice. Um, and thank you so much, Andrew. It was a real pleasure chatting with you today. I, I learned a lot about um, this uh, very cool world. So appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much, Tony. It was a pleasure. And as always, thank you to all of our listeners out there. Make sure you subscribe at www.winningretailpodcast.com. And until next time, remember, keep reinventing retail. Thank you again for listening to Winning Retail. To find more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter, go to winningretailpodcast.com.